let's just get right to it. If you've got a copy of the scriptures, would you grab it and turn to Psalm 116? If you don't have a Bible, there's some on the ends of your row. Ask somebody to pass it down to you. If you don't know where Psalm 116 is, it's pretty much right in the center of the Bible. So just turn towards the center. You'll find the Psalms. Look for Psalm 116. We are in our second week in what we're calling the Summer of Psalms. Uh, every summer we'll, we'll spend eight to ten weeks in the Psalms until we finish them. So we'll be here for at least 15 years. So settle in. It's going to be a great ride. The Psalms are ancient prayers from the people of God, God's children. And the Psalms teach us how to pray and they teach us how to live. Because living is praying and praying is living. So we need the Psalms. They're the great master, the teacher, to help us to live and to pray, okay? So if you're there with me, let's read Psalm 116 together. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, He saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed even when I spoke these words, I am greatly afflicted. When I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all His people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. O Lord, I am Your servant. I am Your servant, the son of Your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to You the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all His people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. This is the Word of God. A beautiful psalm. Look with me now as we begin to unpack and consider what these words mean. Verse 1. The psalmist says, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. What is the origin story behind this psalm? We don't know for sure. Could be related to the Egyptians' emancipation from slavery in, in uh, Egypt. It could be Hezekiah's cry for help as his enemies pressed in on him. It could be King David pleading for God's mercy as his own son, Absalom, pursued him and tried to kill him. We don't, we don't know for sure. We know that it's written after the fact, after the Lord heard his pleas. But whatever the backstory is that leads to this psalm, uh, we do know one thing. Every single human being who comes to God, if they come at all, comes 
in utter desperation. Bar none. Every single human being who comes to God comes looking for his help, and that's okay. I mean, sometimes we think, oh, you're just turning to God uh, because you need something, because you've tried everything else. It's the opiate of the masses. Don't look down on those who turn for tangible help from the Lord because we all come to God in desperation. It's just the way it works and it's totally normal. Until we realize our need, we will not turn to the Lord. I love this part of the psalm. It just acknowledges that that's the reason we cry out to God. We need his help. Um, Many of you know I love cinema. The French say that as well, Brandon? Cinema? Uh, the theater, okay? I love <laughs> movies. And sometimes I weep at movies. If it's good enough, I will weep. I've got no problem with that. And I like to be loud when I weep. I want people to know. And as I thought about this psalm, I thought about one of my favorite movies and one of my favorite scenes from that movie. Has anyone seen the movie Gravity with Sandra Bullock? <sighs> Great movie. <laughs> it's a great movie. If you haven't seen it, uh, I actually posted this clip I'm going to mention on the Facebook group. If you're not a part of the Facebook group, you could go join the group and, and watch this. It's pretty powerful. Uh, the movie's all about um, basically being uh, lost in space. Uh, there's a disaster on a space station, and, and there's really good-looking people floating around in space. <laughs> George Clooney, Sandra Bullock. <laughs> so it's a great movie. I mean, what else would you want, okay? And at one point, she's all alone. Everyone else on her team has died, spoiler alert, and she's left alone, and she's found her way uh, to a rescue pod, but there's no fuel. And so she basically assumes that this is the end of her life. And she's sitting there all by herself, no radio communications with Houston, and this is what she says. So I'm going to just read for you the lines from, uh, from this moment. They're, they're profound, and they remind us of how we all are when we realize our situation. She says this, I'm going to die. I know we're all going to die. Everybody knows that, but I'm going to die today. Funny that you know to know, but the thing is, is that I'm still scared. I'm really scared. I'm really scared. Nobody will mourn for me. No one will pray for my soul. Will you mourn for me? Will you say a prayer for me? Or is it too late? I mean, I'd say a prayer for myself, but I've never prayed in my whole life. Nobody taught me how. And she repeats it. Nobody taught me how. Now, when this movie came out in 2013, I was in seminary studying to be a pastor. (laughs) And um, I cried out. I'll teach you how to pray, Sandra. <laughs> well, I, I, I yelled that in my heart. <laughs> I didn't say it out loud. But that's what was going through me. And so I just began to weep. I was like, I will teach you how to pray. People need to know. 
because there's often good-looking people floating around in space. I mean, it's just, a, it's a very uh, profound scene and reminds us that this is often people's dilemma. They know that they're dead. They know that they're going to die. And they don't know how to pray. And nobody's praying for them. But she does what all human beings deep in their soul know to do. I feel like I should pray right now. And she comes to God in her desperation. We all come to God in our desperation, and I wish people like Sandra Bullock in this movie, I wish they knew the beautiful truth of verse two. Look at verse two. It says this. Because he, that's God, inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. Now here's the beauty of this phrase. Because he inclined his ear to me. Here's what the psalmist is saying. He's saying God, the all-powerful, all-knowing God, actually bends down. Like, like, like a dad bends down. I have a three-year-old son and gets close to hear what his children are saying. That's, that's what this word here in the Hebrew means. He's bent down. He's come near to us so that when we finally cry out to him for help, he is already there. He can already hear and he's ready to act. God comes down to our level so that he might best understand our plight and our pleas for his mercy. He doesn't have to do this, but he loves us. This is most profoundly experienced by the human race when God came down to earth in the person of Jesus Christ, the God-man. He put on our flesh. He bent his knee so low that he understood us that we might understand him as well. It reminds me of what Walter Brueggemann, a theologian and author, says about life with God and prayer with God. He says, life and prayer with God, it's like a dance. And I know a little bit about dance. I'm something of an expert in the Texas two-step. I'm Seattle-born, but lived four years in Dallas, Texas, and one of my favorite things to do uh, in Texas was to go to the honky-tonk, the dance hall, and do a little Texas two-step. Thanks for noticing. Yeah, I know what I'm doing on the dance floor, but actually the most, uh, how do I say this? Really the most intense moment at the honky-tonk is not once you're already out there moving. I mean, that's easy. Then the hips get going, no problem. The most intense moment is the ask. You know what I'm talking about? The ask. Meaning, you see somebody who you want to dance with, and you got to walk up to them. Maybe they're sitting on the side, sitting on a, on a stool or something, and you got to ask them, hey, would you like to dance with me? And this goes both ways. Men asking women, women asking men. In fact, one of my favorite stories at Billy Bob's, world's largest honky-tonk in Fort Worth, Texas. You heard about Billy Bob's? I'm sitting on the side, minding my own business, relaxing a little bit. And, uh, and uh, my wife's going to be so mad. Why am I telling this story? It's funny. Okay. 
an older woman, several decades perhaps, older than me. I was in my 20s at the time. She, come, she walks up, and I'm like, what? you can see her coming. And she walks up to me, and she simply slides a piece of paper across the table <laughs> and walks away. My friends are with me, and they're like looking at me like, what's going on here? I open the, the piece of paper, and it just says, hey, good looking. <laughs> She's a bold woman. <laughs> we, did, we did not dance. It kind of scared me. <laughs> okay, so we did not dance. If you're listening, miss my chance. Okay. But that could be the hardest part of life in the honky-tonk, the ask. Now, here's the profound truth that, that verse 2 tells us that the incarnation uh, that God becoming flesh tells us. God has already humbled himself. He has already inclined his ear. He has already bent down. He has already exposed himself. And he is standing on the dance floor, waiting for us. Do, do you understand that? I mean, just picture hundreds of people on the honky talk, and God standing there exposed himself communicated his love for us, his desire to be in relationship with us, and he's standing there alone. The God of the universe, how exposed he is. And he's there. He's ready to hear our prayers, our pleas for help, to live life with us. This is what we call a covenant relationship, which means relationship with us is so important to God that he's willing, before we even ask him, to put himself out there and do everything it takes to make this dance possible. He's all in. He's taken the first step. And why this is so important to understand it is because it totally subverts our understanding of religion. Most religions are what we call quid pro quo. You do this for God and he'll do this for you. That's not what's happening here in Psalm 116. That's not how God deals with us. It's totally different. God acts first, and then we respond. And so if you were just looking at the order of events of this psalm, you might mistakenly think, oh, the man cried out for help, the psalmist cried out for help, God responds, and then man responds again. But there's actually a step zero before that, and that's what we've just been talking about, that God, in his love, loved us before we ever acknowledged him. Before we ever realized we needed him, God acted. Romans 5.8 says this, God showed his great love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What does this mean? That while we were still unrepentant, while we were still yet to cry out for help, while we were still worshiping other gods, worshiping money, worshiping fame, worshiping security, worshiping autonomy, worshiping power, worshiping sex. At that moment, God loved us and stepped out and died for us. That's an incredible truth. Who does that? And here's why it's so important to understand that order of events. That God loves, we cry out, God saves, and then we respond in love. This is why understanding that order uh, is so important. 
First, though many of us will wait until that greatest moment of desperation where our physical life is at danger, where we get bad medical news, or we're in utter emotional despair, many of us will still wait for that great moment of fear to cry out for God. But that's not the only way it has to be. It's not the only way to turn to God. We can skip some of that tangible hardship and jump straight to crying out for help, still in desperation, but in desperation for our spiritual need, for the greater spiritual bondage that we find ourselves in. Uh, some of you know we, we, this whole mission to help people consider Jesus started with Consider Concerts uh, that we do here in Seattle. And I used to tell people all the time, why are we doing these concerts? We started those concerts because my sister was killed in a bicycling accident. And I used to tell people, I don't want anyone to have to wait and fully turn themselves to God because they lose a loved one. They can do it before that. And if we understand that God has already acted He's already waiting for us. We don't have to wait until our life is in danger or we're emotionally in despair to turn to God. That's why we share the good news. The good news of Jesus, life, death, and resurrection. And it's news. You ever wonder why we call it the good news? It's news because it's already happened. It's already printed on the front page of eternity. God's already done it. Jesus has already paid for your sin. Jesus has already risen from the grave. The bonds of the greatest death, the death of our spirit in relationship with God, those bonds have already been severed. God has cut the ties through the cross and the resurrection. It's news because it's already happened and people need to know that. People need to know that, that they might cry out to him now and not wait until they hit rock bottom. So look with me now uh, so we might see what it is that Christ has done. What is this good news? And this psalm, though it's written initially probably for a tangible, uh, physical rescue that God helped the psalmist to make, it applies to all of us for what Christ has done for us in the spiritual realm. So read now with me uh, verses 3 to 9 as he explains the facts of what God has done, okay? Starting in verse 3. Here we go. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol, it's the land of the dead, laid hold on me. I suffered distress, that's physical distress, is the Hebrew word there, and anguish, that's emotional distress. Then I called out to the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. And the Lord was gracious and righteous and merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, He saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Resurrection. This is what the Lord has done for each and every one of us. He's already done that. He wants us to know that. People need to know this. People who do not know that this is true, that God has done this for them, they need to know the gravity 
of what God has done so that they might turn to him now and not wait until they hit their rock bottom. Second reason why understanding this order is so important is that we must respond. We have a part to play. First, we call out to God for grace and mercy. This seals that covenant love that we talked about. God's already standing there. When we respond, it seals it. So what is this response to the covenant? God's standing on the dance floor. It's a realization that it takes two to tango. He loved us, and we respond with love for him. Look at verse 7. I love this part of the psalm. It's like self-talk. It's okay to self-talk yourself, to tell your soul where to go, who to dance with. Verse 7 says, Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. He's, he's commanding. It's an imperative. He's telling his soul, return. Remember what he's done for you. Return to him. I love that. So when we get to him, what do we do? How do we love God? Look at verse 12. The psalmist understands this. The magnitude of what responding to God's infinite love would look like. He says, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? What, what in the world could I give back to God? First of all, do you ever ask yourself this question? What could I render to God? We should ask it a lot more often than we do. God, what could I give to you? So both we should ask it, but we also realize, to ask it another way, how could it be possible to love God in the same way he's loved me? And the answer is we don't love him exactly the same way, but that's okay. We can love him nonetheless. And verses 13 through 19 are going to tell us how we can even come close to responding in love to what God has, uh, for the way that God has loved us. So if you've got a pen, grab your pen. I actually want you to circle, even if it's not your own Bible, because whoever picks up the Bible next, circle all the I's, and I want you to circle all the N's as we come across them, okay? So grab your pen as we read 13 through 19. Circle every time you see I and ends. This reminds us we have something to do and it's going to tell us where we do it. Verse 13. I will lift up my cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. So the eyes have it. The eyes tell us what we need to do. Pretty clear here, right? There's several things that we can do to begin to love God back for the love that he has showed to us. I will lift the cup of my salvation. Now, what is he talking about here? Well, in the Old Testament law, what you can find is what's known as the drink offering, which is one of the offerings poured out as sacrifice 
to, to Yahweh, to the God of Israel, uh, for his kindness. Um, so in one sense, he's talking about this Old Testament offering. In another sense, it's talking about um, at, a, at a Passover feast, at the feast of celebration for the people of Israel, it was a custom for the head of the house to stand up and, and give a toast to Yahweh, to God, for all the things that God had done. So all this symbolism is in mind here. Uh, but we are not Old Testament Israel. We are New Testament people, people of the New Covenant, God's people throughout the nations. And in 1 Corinthians 16, we see the Apostle Paul use the same idea. He calls it the cup of blessing. He says the cup of blessing. And guess what he's talking about when he's talking about the cup of blessing? He's talking about the Lord's Supper. That on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he led, like the head of the house, his people at the Passover ceremony, and he thanked God, knowing full well that he was about to give his life as a ransom for many, and he initiated this new covenant, this new tradition, where now the cup of salvation is the cup of Jesus' blood. And every week at Sedaris, we come and we celebrate the cup. So actually, when you come and you take communion, what you are saying is what the psalmist is saying here. That because I realize the love that God has had for me, that he gave up his life, that he shed his blood, that his body was broken for me, for my sin, for my separation, that I might be made new, I will lift up this cup and declare, make a toast to God, Jesus is my Savior. I will lift my cup, Jesus is my Savior. We do that every week. We do that every week. We call on the name of the Lord. Jesus alone, be my Savior. Verse 14, he says, I will pay my vows to the Lord. What's he talking about here? He's saying, I'll fulfill my vows. So, so often this happens, right? I mean, you could just picture Sandra Bullock in the space station saying this, though she doesn't say it out loud. She's saying, God, if you save me from this, I will do this for you. We're making a vow. So many times we're doing that in our heart of hearts, and that's okay. That we make promises to God that if he saves us, we will do this for him. And so he's saying, I will fulfill those vows that I made to you when I was in desperation, and I'll fulfill those vows over the rest of my life. And then he says, I will be your servant. Probably part of the vow that we each should make when we ask God to save us. God, I will be your servant. If you save me from the pangs of Sheol, from the pangs of hell, I will serve you with my whole life. And he's going to do that. And then it says, I will make a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Basically what's happening here is he's promising to acknowledge that it is God who has given him everything in his life. What would that look like for us? Well, it means that when we come together and worship, we're singing songs of thanks to God. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for me. Thank you for this day. This is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it because God gave us this day. Everything we have is because of God. Colossians 1 says, Jesus Christ himself holds all things together, that we have our breath and our being, that we can even wake up. We should thank God. 
If you're like me, you have the tendency to say, man, I got lucky. Man, what a great break. Just commit. I will give offerings of thanksgiving to God for everything good in my life. It's such a simple thing, right? But God receives that as love. God receives that as love. Now, here's the crux. Where do we do these things? Here's the ends that we circled. Where do we do these things? In the presence of all God's people. In the house of the Lord. In the midst of Jerusalem, which was the city on the hill. Now, where is that? For us as New Testament people living in 2018. Guess where that is? That's the local church. This is where the people of God assemble. This is the house of the Lord. This is the city on a hill. So the psalmist is saying, I will do each of these things, and I will do it in the local church. How are you doing with your response of love? How's it going? If this is the way God receives love back from us, how's it going? Maybe you say, well, it's going pretty well. You're here today. I, pre- I preach sermons like this, and I'm always like, it's the people that aren't here that probably need to hear this. So maybe it's going well for you, but maybe you have a Christian friend who it's not going so well for. Maybe you need to tell them. Maybe you need to go from here. Maybe it's a roommate. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a friend, and you need to tell them, hey, one of the ways, I know that you love God, one of the ways you love him back is by assembling with his people to give thanksgiving, to lift the cup of salvation, to praise God's name, and to fulfill your vows in public. Go back and tell them. Maybe send them this sermon. Say, listen to this. This is important. You have a response. It takes two to tango. This is the way God receives love from you. Maybe this statement makes you mad. Maybe you're boiling a bit inside. Some might even say, your onions are boiling. Why should I have to participate in the local church to love God? I can love him anywhere. Well, of course that's true. But, if nothing else, this is, who, this is how God says he receives love. This is his love language. And if we knew no other reason than this is what God says, he likes to receive love, shouldn't that be enough? Shouldn't it be enough that this is how God likes to be loved? If you love him, love him the way he likes to be loved. Unfortunately, I don't think that's the only thing we know about why God receives love this way. I think we could also say that he receives love this way because he not only loves us, but he loves all of his children. And there's something that happens when we gather together that stirs us all. John Calvin said it this way. We meet together that we might mutually stimulate one another. Stimulate one another to what? To more love for God. It's so easy for us to forget what God has done, isn't it? It's so easy to forget what he has done, that he has rescued us from the snares of death. The snares of death means that there's literally a rope tied around our feet dragging us into 
death. And God has rescued us from that. He's rescued us from hell. From separation from Him in the land of the dead. It's easy to forget what God is doing. That He's giving us new life. That we're walking now in the land of the living and we'll walk in eternity in the land of the living. It's so easy to forget what God will do that he'll wipe away every tear, that he will destroy death itself, that he will repair all brokenness, and that he will remove evil from his good creation. So easy to forget. And so we gather together to remind each other by lifting up the cup of salvation, by calling on the name of Jesus in song and in word, by keeping our vows so that everyone can see us living out our commitments to Christ publicly, by serving His bride, the church, by offering thanksgiving publicly to help stimulate each other to remember and to realize the depths of what God has done. So how often, you say? How often's enough? Well, again, that's the wrong question. How often is enough? At least three or four times a month. Okay, so that, that's what I would say is often enough, but I wouldn't want to miss any of it. If I could meet every day to remind myself and others of what Christ has done, I would meet every day. That's what you see the early church doing, meeting every day to talk about this. Because some days, you'll need the reminder. And you'll see your friend praising God, thanking Him for His rescue in their life, and you're reminded, oh my gosh, He's done that for me too. And some days, you're that friend who's reminding another. And they see, and they see you praising God, and they're reminded. So as often as possible, we gather together and mutually stimulate one another to remember God's love for us. And God receives that as love because he loves each of us and wants to draw all of us back to him, his children. He wants to dance with us all. Now, if you're taking attendance regularly, which I don't do, by the way. It's too depressing. But <laughs> I can kind of tell, and you can probably realize this, three to four times a month is pretty rare anymore in the local church. Not, not just our church, every church. In all parts of the country, it's very rare, three to four times a month. Now why is that? I think it's because if we have two, well, we probably have many distorted thoughts. I'm going to mention two distorted thoughts about how we think about church. And, and by the way, church is not just Sunday, church is what we are, we gather to quote-unquote do church to worship together, okay? But we have distorted views, even how we talk about going to church. The first is this. We think of church attendance like airline miles. And we think over our life, if we accumulate enough airline miles, we've sort of purchased our one-way ticket to heaven. Free ticket. Even more, we think they might expire. Recently, I got an email from Southwest. 
the greyhound of the sky. <laughs> and got a great, my airline guy right here. Uh, the greyhound of the sky. And they said, hey, just want you to know your airline miles are expiring in August. Better take a flight. And I'm thinking to myself, I thought I got those things forever. But I think we think about this with church. I better just check in every once in a while to keep those miles current. I don't want my miles to expire like they do on Southwest. So we check in. We keep those miles current just to make sure we're good to go on that great flight to the sky. That's not the way this works. We already have an unexpiring, already deposited ticket to eternity with God. Jesus bought that for us on Calvary's cross. It is paid for. It is not accumulated by a life of good works or church attendance or anything. He bought it 2,000 years ago. And you can't lose it. And it's actually when you realize that that's the way it works that you are compelled to come and worship and sing and thank God. Why me? Second distorted way of thinking about church has to do with economics 101. I remember sitting in Kane Hall, University of Washington, falling asleep in economics 101. So I might have missed a few things, but I do remember this. It's the law of scarcity. And scarcity goes like this. The more scarce a commodity is, the more valuable it is on the open market. And I think sometimes we think about this with church. We say, well, I've also heard it say, Dave, Dave you say love God and love Him through public worship. I've also heard it said that absence makes the heart grow fonder. So why don't I not oversaturate my market with church attendance so that each time I go, I fully realize the value? Because absence makes the heart go fonder. Here's why this thinking is completely bunk. Absence does not make the heart grow fonder unless that absence is unavoidable. Okay? So if my wife is working in the office building next to me, and I tell her, listen, let's limit our lunches together to once a month because I don't want you to get too used to it. I want you to enjoy your time with me and I'm going to go three times a week, have lunch with my buddies at work. She is not, not going to say, wow, this absence is really making my heart grow fonder. Thanks for limiting the quantity, the supply. Love with a man or a woman always grows through time spent together. Same is true with God. Otherwise, I'd love those that I've never met more than I love my wife. And that's just not true. But once I've spent many a dance with my beautiful wife, starting with my first dance, and all the dances we've danced since, if an absence becomes unavoidable, Perhaps I get deployed overseas. Perhaps there's business trips that I cannot get out of. 
Then and only then will that absence make my heart grow fonder. If my absence is chosen or planned, then it becomes what I call artificial scarcity. You know what artificial scarcity is? It's the McGriddle. Pardon my French. The McGriddle. That's McDonald's way, if you haven't had the McGriddle, of only bringing a particular sandwich onto the menu for limited amounts of time so that people might get excited about it, that they might value it more, when to be honest, if it was on the menu all the time, we'd get sick of it. It's kind of gross. Or maybe, am I thinking about the McGriddle or am I thinking about the McRib? What am I thinking about? They do this all the time. Eh, they're the best. Okay. That's artificial scarcity. And the, whatever love we have for those things, where manufacturers purposely keep quantity low to make us think that it's special, that's artificial scarcity and it's not true love. And ultimately, over time, it will be exposed as manufactured. And we don't want that with our relationship with God. So unless you live in a country without gospel-preaching churches, or you're on house arrest with one of those fancy ankle bracelets and you get buzzed every time you go outside of your yard, or you're allergic to middle school linoleum, unless that's the case, you will not convince me that absence from church makes your love for God grow. It will not happen. I've been around too long and myself tried these tactics to realize that they are bunk. It doesn't work. I have never met anyone who was coming to the public gathering of God's people three to four times a month who was less in love with God than the person coming once a month. Never. Why is this? Because the more you attend public worship, the more aware you become of what God is and has and will do in the world. Verses 3 to 9. The more often you're reminded of that, the deeper in love you will fall with God. And here's, it's, it's almost sad what happens. The aware become more aware. It's like the rich getting richer. The aware become more aware. Those who remember what God has done, remember all the more. Those who realize God's love, realize it to a deeper and fuller degree. It's just the way it works. There was, there was a time when I had been to 148 of 150 Sedaris public gatherings in a row. And when I missed... I wasn't relieved. I felt out of place. I felt a great loss. I felt disoriented. I thought I was missing out on the greatest part of my life. How could that be? Because God's love is so deep that I never plumb the depths of it. I never fully understand it. And only when I gather am I reminded of it, become more aware, and I miss that. So what do you do if you've been thinking wrong about the way you love God back, if you've been thinking wrong about what a church gathering is, 
If you've fallen short of what God has told us is his love language, what do you do? What do you do? Or maybe you don't believe me that this is true. What should you do? Well, I'm going to give you a dare. I'm going to give you a dare, a double dare. I want you for the next six months, and, and maybe you wait till September. <laughs> okay, that's fine. Starting in September, for the next six months, I'm going to clear my schedule so that I can make three to four Sundays a month. That would be 18 to 24 reminders of God's grace, of Jesus' death for my sin, that he has cut the ropes that were pulling me into death. And I guarantee you, and if this doesn't happen for you, you come to me, I'll buy a fancy steak dinner, and you can reorganize your schedule. But I guarantee you, you will love God in a way that you've never loved him before. You will experience life to a fullness that you have not experienced in recent years. And you will be begging me to do a Wednesday night service. Well, maybe not the last part, but you will be excited about church in a way that you never have been before. I guarantee it to happen to me. And you say, I don't know, I don't know if I can do that. Often in life, we have to start with an action. And we start a new habit or a new way of life and that leads to new affections. And once our affections begin to change, then we get a new mind. And our mind begins to change. And those ways of thinking about church as airline miles or church as economics 101, those begin to change. But it starts with our feet first, our heart will follow, and then our mind will renew. This is the way that the God who sent his son to die in our place so that we might have new life has told us to respond in love to him. If you've never accepted his hand to dance, you can cry out to him today. And you can begin through action to change the affections of your heart to have a new mind that sees God and his glory and his goodness and the facts of his love for you in a whole new way. So what I'd like to do now, I'd like to pray Psalm 116 out loud. And I'm going to change the psalm to be even a little bit more first person, okay? And I would like you, just in the quiet of your heart, so bow your head, close your eyes, Calm your mind. Take a few deep breaths. I'd like in, in your heart quietly to pray along with me. If you have experienced this or if you want to experience life with God, pray along with me. I love you, Lord, because you heard my cries for mercy and grace. Because you inclined your ear to hear me, I will call on you as long as I live. 
The ropes of death because of my sin were wrapped around my feet and the terror of hell laid hold of me. I suffered physical distress and emotional anguish, but then I called on the name of the Lord. I prayed, Lord Jesus, save my soul. And you were gracious, and you were righteous, and you were merciful. Lord, you preserved the simple. When I was brought low, you saved me. You delivered my soul from death. You delivered my eyes from tears. You delivered my feet from stumbling. Because of you, I will walk in the land of the living. Even when I cried out, I am greatly afflicted. Even when I cried out, all mankind are liars. I believed you could and you would save me. What can I give back to you, Jesus, for all the benefits that you've given to me? I will raise up the cup of salvation and call upon your name in the presence of your people. I will fulfill my vows to you, God, so that all your people might see. I am your servant because you have broken my chains of bondage. I offer to you and you alone my sacrifice of thanksgiving. I promise to keep my vows to call upon your name in the presence of your people, in your house, in the midst of your holy city, your bride, the church. Praise the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.